so this is a new presentation. It's probably light on information, but gives plenty of time for discussion and questions at the end. Let's go. So no conflicts. I work under stewardship, so I just always have that slide. Uh, we're going to talk about, like I was when we were walking over, that especially if people haven't heard Rod's talk about antifungals, I kind of wanted to set the stage, talk about a little bit of antifungals, and talk about aspergillus, mucor, and sporothrix. And then always, I love a good cartoon that I've made myself. So with that in mind, just looking at fungal structure, we have the kinocandids that are against the glucan and the cell wall. We have triazoles, especially that are against ergesterol synthesis. Then we have polyenes that bind to gesterol, leading to formation of pores. And then the much less used pyrimidine analogs like fusidacine as against nucleic acid synthesis. And they keep this in the back of your mind when we go to start treating these patients. Also, you should be very cognizant of your side effect profile of your drugs because you have to think of the disease, the drug, the patient, all the different host factors. Contraindicated with prolonged QTC are your first two, which would be Vori and Posa. Contraindicated with short QTC, this is going to be isovericotazonium, also known as Cresemba. Hallucinations, this is one of my pet peeves, for lack of a better word, is, you know, we talk about visual alterations is definitely around 30%, but a lot of the patients is that with the first couple of weeks, you take a dose, you have visual alterations, you get a halo around the light. To me, that's not a hallucination, so I'm very careful about that type of verbiage with my patient because you set the patient up to fail. And especially because what I do on a regular basis is bone marrow transplant ID. I always tell them, even if you have a problem, please don't spontaneously stop your drug because you have a lot of drug-drug interactions. We don't want your immunosuppression to get messed up. Now for toxicity for all formulations would be amphibate-based products. Nephrotoxicity, we used to talk about this more, but it is less of an issue now as Vori when it's IV. Drug level monitoring, definitely Vori poser traditionally at the seventh day mark, meaning they're a steady state, check a level, make sure it is adequate. Drug drug interactions, definitely all of the big triazoles, some have higher rates of drug drug interactions, some have lower, but just that you're cognizant. Photosensitivity rash. So one of my famous stories about this is I had a patient with cryptococcus due to need. He was on a Vori-based drug regimen. And when he came in for his transplant, he literally looked like a purple smurf. And I just looked at him and I looked at his wife. I looked back at him and I'm like, what happened? And he's like, well, it's coming for a transplant. I'm like, obviously. And he's like, so I went fishing. And I was like, and and he's like what happened he said he was he got burned from the reflection off the water and his wife whacked him in front of me and i looked at him like please no more of that in front of me because we are in the hospital premises but it could definitely happen from direct light reflective light um there are some case reports even from tube lights transaminitis all of these drugs to different degrees vori is the most notorious and then fluoride accumulation issues this was originally described in the pediatric We've had cases at Moffitt. Usually when you say example case would be voriconazole when you're close to six months or more, periosteal lifting on a plain film, you could definitely order the fluoride level 
and it would come back elevated. So keeping in mind the bugs of today's discussion, being the Aspergillus family, the Mucor family, and Sporothrix, I kind of just extracted this from the Stanford Guide. Most Aspergillus, you can see you can use a wide array, but the key one is Aspergillus terius, is no M4B products. Um, then with Mucor, the key thing is no for boric coverage traditionally. And then with Sporotrix, you have the additional option of using itraconazole. So we went through antifungals. Let's talk about the big three. So the first one, and these are real cases, uh, is a 66-year-old Pasmel Gucci sniffing for COVID pneumonia. Then with a two-week history of worsening shortness of breath, fever, myalgia, nausea, got dex, got tosi. At that part in time, uh, wasn't able to get remdesivir, got discharged. It was then on return, patient had worsening shortness of breath, got intubated. Richard, is this? Yes, it is. So, what does it work? Needless to say, um, on the bronchoscopy that they did based on these uh, wonderful lung images, we were able to see that the bronch fungal culture had no growth, but the galactomannan was 4.7, which is way above normal. And then the serum galactomannan, though, was negligible. It was normal. So they're not what we originally thought of until the COVID time here, but there is now a scenario that post-COVID you can get aspergillus pneumonia. So type of aspergillus in general, it's ubiquitous. Many species that are considered opportunistic infections, notoriously number one is fumigatus. In general, if you took a step back and just like the bread and butter of what we do at Moffitt, there are actually still like three big categories of aspergillus, the opportunistic infections, the allergic scenarios, and then the chronic pulmonary aspergillosis. Depending on which literature reference you look at, they kind of divide this differently, and I have a graphic in a few moments as well. Under the microscope, if you go to the micro lab, there's a lot of different descriptors. So for example, aspergillus versicolor, which is the bottom one on the chart, which versicolor are different colors. You can see at the beginning it's yellow, then tan, green, or pink. You have these different colors. And then when you turn the plate over, it has a different set of colors. And please be aware, these are the ones that are in shrink wrap because you should never be snorting any of these fungal plates. It's very unsafe. And obviously, you don't touch them either. Most of these grow very quickly. And the sad thing is, if you think they grow quickly on a plate, they could grow very quickly in a human as well. When you start selecting out, for example, a drug-resistant aspergillus, I've seen where there was a small part on a lung. And then within seven days, we went to go rebronch, and the whole right side of the lung was gone because of the aspergillus. Under the microscope, this is important to know, like on your exam, they'll give you hints like acute angle branching, 90 degree branching, septate, no septate. So to be cognizant that for the most part, aspergillus is septated and it is acute angle, as you can see in this specific image. Apparently finding an acute angle image took me way longer yesterday than I wanted to. But this one was one of my favorites, and if anyone has had my tidbits and looked at it, I have two chairs sitting just for you. <laughs> yes, where else would be the two chairs sitting? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it should be. Of course. So this is from Jeff's favorite microphone. 
And I literally scanned it and threw it in the tidbits because it's so beautiful. And it just essentially talks about when we need them to have sex to be able to have these components so that then we can compare them. That's oftentimes when we do things macroscopically when we're looking at them, um, that that's what they're looking for. And I can happily, uh, Dr. Ayler has the slides, he can happily share it with all the fellows for reference, if you so wish. This is just another different from the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, how they provided pulmonary aspergillosis. You have a history of asthma like myself, you could have allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, which usually, again, doesn't come to us, they should go to allergy and immunology. Building one. It's never good. Uh, immunocompromised, this is our traditional patient population in base of pulmonary aspergillosis, issue of chronic lung disease with the chronic pulmonary aspergillosis. These are the ones that are a little bit trickier. So sometimes we'll get like a lung trend, not lung transplant, lung cancer patient who has some lung defect. And then they're like, oh, we're going to do a bronch, but it comes back with a galactamin positive. And you're like, well, that most likely is just a colonizer, most likely doesn't need therapy, but then the reality of medicine is the doctor needs a little bit of hand-holding, the patient needs a little bit of hand-holding, so you'll see once in clinic, it'll explain that you're not quite the correct host, and therefore do not meet criteria for treatment. This is just also in verbiage what, how they described the allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis scenario, uh, looking at allergy elements. And then the second one, which are our favorite at Moffitt, that it really again goes back to looking at host issues. Are you neutropenic? How deep is your neutropenia? Are you like ANC 480 or are you ANC 0? Because to us, there's actually a significant difference. Has it been less than 10 days? Or has it been like one of Dr. Green's special patients on Fortnite for six weeks and I just scratch my head. I'm like, I don't know what to do for you because if you don't get your white cells back, you cannot really get rid of this infection, at least not in a durable fashion. And then you look at steroids. So the newest version of this problem is when we are treating our CAR-T patients or our chimeric antigen receptor patients, they get cuckoo for cocoa puffs, also known as ICANS, and then they go on a lot of steroids. But literally, they just put it, I swear, in the water because they're like, oh, it's just steroids. I'm like, and these are the patients that then get candida infections and mold infections. And we still have a paucity of labs. Oftentimes, if you have a lung finding, that's our easiest scenario because you could do a, a bronchoscopy with a galactamanin that has the highest sensitivity. Um, but we still don't have a lot of like systemic labs that are easier. One could argue that with the microbial cell-free DNA, that that is kind of like a new lab in our armamentarium. Anyone know what I'm referencing when I say that test? Carious is the brand name. So we have been able to, on patients that despite getting a bronch, despite not growing it in the bronch, that they have enough of the fungus floating around in the blood that we pick it up on the carious. I thought this was a pretty spiffy image, that's why I added it in, just talking about how resistance doesn't happen just in a vacuum, right? There are issues like we see in bacterial resistance, especially coming out of India. It's from the community and then again within our patients 
we are definitely at Moffitt having trouble more so with fusarium, but we definitely see it with aspergillus as well. There's definitely issues with resistance. You have to keep it in the back of your mind. When you're clinically taking care of your patient, you're like, I am on the theoretical good drug. Why is my patient not improving? Is it because they're still neutropenic or is it because do I have a resistance issue? So we talked about the seven days, check a level, ensure compliance. You'd be surprised how much that's a problem. Be careful of drug drug interactions. Um, in terms of fungal pneumonias, traditionally we do treat for three months as a whole, but we will break it up in half. We'll treat for six weeks, get a new CT, new visit, make sure they're fine, make sure they have their meds, make sure their CT is improving, and then do the final one. Because sadly, some of these fungus balls are also more than one fungus, and so you could improve initially, and then you could worsen the second time, and you need that extra data point. Um, and then, like I said, you have to try ideally to be like, is your neutropenia resolved? Are you on GCSF? Are we doing all that we can support for you? Immunosuppression, if you're having significant problems um, improving, say, a bone marrow transplant patient, you can communicate with the transplanter to be like, your net state of immunosuppression is too high. Can we please dial this down? And then one of my favorite, though it's old, it is still one of my favorite images because it helps remind you. So like pre engraftment when we start our chemotherapy up to day 1545, when your counts come up, the defects of the people of aspergillus early, these are the ones who come in to transplant, for example, already neutropenic. So the clock has already been running essentially versus those that their clock is being driven by the use of steroids. And so they're the ones that will have trouble later on. So, but if you definitely haven't seen this article, it is worthwhile to check it out. All right, moving on to number two, mucormycosis, rare, except at Moffitt, rare, the life-threatening opportunistic infection predominantly in immunosuppressed. This is a particular 68-year-old person who literally just had diabetes. Now, she had also influenza A acutely, had some MSSA pneumonia, and then when they went to go work out the lung stuff, they also found out that there was pulmonary mucormycosis. This is very nice because you can see that there is no septate in the broad, non-septated hyphae of mucor. That was one of the reasons why I used the image. But also just Moose antlers. Yes, moose antlers. <laughs> to be clear, like if you look just at the CT, you wouldn't have a clue. Okay, so be aware. It can look like other things. This is why tissue is always the issue for us. So in general, formerly known as zygo, it is angiotropic. It includes obsidia, rhizomucor, rhizopus. There's a wide long list of risk factors. And the fact is you can have your infection on multiple sites, pulmonary, rhinos, rebuild, skin, GI. John Green has beautiful images from previous patients who are missing vital body parts on the face. So under the microscope, very fast growing can be caught need to fluffy looking ribbon. That's supposed to say like, I apologize for the extra legend. Acute angle branching. You treat with antifungals, you treat with surgery, especially anywhere in the face, you correct the abnormality. If it's an uncontrolled diabetic, you get the sugar under control from there. This is a very good case where they had in the sinus section, you can see, especially in A, pre-op in the maxillary sinus, goes into the nasal cavity, obliterates the osteomedial unit. So this is where when we look at CT sinuses, 
you want to look for bone thinning or literally a hole, like you'll see a smooth bone, whole smooth bone, and so that then becomes concerned. I will say this, so I had a mimicker of this when I first started as an attending 11 years ago, a patient came in post-transplant, so autoimmunosuppression, had new onset eye proptosis. They're like, oh my God, must be mucor. He biopsied that bad boy. It was a myeloid sarcoma. He had relapsed with a ball of AML in his sinus. So though, yes, for all intents and purposes, should have been mucor, unfortunately was actually just relapsing with his primary disease. Moving on to the third case. We have this one, which is a very interesting. We don't see this as often because we're not a typical geographical area for this disease. It was a 65-year-old farmer, so had an agricultural inoculation to the back of the hand. They did a biopsy. The biopsy then showed the sporotrichosis. It creates this subacute to chronic. And again, you look at this hand, you would not be able to tell what it is innately. Um, what I thought, and we'll talk about it again in a bit, is the fact that it could be a mimicker or confused with pyoderma gangrenosa which I have seen at Tampa General before. But the key thing is that it, once they got the diagnosis, it was treated with itrotribinifen, and I thought it was fascinating was local thermal therapy, but it healed very well without any problems. So what are key things that you should know about? So the other name is Rose Handler's disease. It really helps you remember like direct inoculation, people who play around in the soil. It's another reason not to have roses. So. I mean, they're beautiful, but damn, are they not, not fun if they attack you. Um, thermally dimorphic fungus. Very subtle. Very subtle. I think you were just attacking that piece of equipment. You were like, you're so new, you're so beautiful. Let me kill you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we won't even talk about it. It didn't happen, okay? You didn't see anything. Not a problem. So sporotrix, unlike the other two diseases, it has this cutaneous, lymphocutaneous going up from the direct inoculation, very specific type of pattern that not a lot of our other infections have. That you can inhale the conidia as well for primary pulmonary infection, yet another plate local sniffing. You know, geographical tendency, tropical and subtropical areas. I found it fascinating that they say that overall Peru has one of the highest rates of infection and that they're often misdiagnosed as pyoderma. Under the microscope, this is a kind of a different type of description to our other more pathogenic modes that we've talked about. It's moist, leathery to velvety, wrinkled surface. I'll be the first one to say I have not seen this in person uh, because sporotrix is not necessarily a big muffet. Uh, type of infection, but the key thing for our exams is to be cognizant is that it produces these oval to cigar shaped cigar bodies as yeast cells. And the tradition when you do use itraconazole, again, you need a level. The reference I was looking at was approximately two weeks into therapy. Um, for localized pulmonary infection, you can also consider surgical removal. I can say when I've used ITRA, it has been a pain in the derriere to ensure that your level stays steady, your patient's absorbing it, or the fact that you can even buy it. 
This is the cigar bodies and specifically um, at 37 degrees because remember it's dimorphic, so these different shapes will show up at different times. I love a good doctor from this reference. This has very good information and very good cases. So if you want to see multiple cases, Dr. Fungus has a case per month with the overall case, like the imaging and then the micro cases. So a very good reference. And then we went through a bunch of these different things. And let's talk a little bit of the antifungal pipeline. I'm again, not sure what Rod went over. I just thought it was a good opportunity to throw this in. So at Moffitt, we've been using, getting a hold of phosphonogenics. Um, we have used eyebrows, but not resifungin. And we've, did we actually get it in a Laura Farm case or have been just trying to get we, That's just something really interesting. Yeah. And so let's talk about what these drugs actually do. So for phosphonogenics, we have been using it for MDR fusarium, but you can see it has a wide array of different um, potential uh, points to go against. It has also synergy with liposomal and B, but in all honesty, in our most recent one that I treated for fusarium, the patient had AKI, so we have to stop the AMPHO. With IBREX, the key thing is, of course, treating invasive candidiasis, and that includes candida auris, and that is a potential oral step-down option. Orolofilm, we have not been able to to date. And then the resofungin is pretty spiffy in that it has this long half-life. It's given literally once a week. So great potential use in the outpatient setting since a lot of chemotherapy has gone outpatient for malheme as well as their push for BMT. And with that, I just want to remind everybody that we have a beautiful big stewardship team at Moffitt that it takes all of us to take care of our patients. It's not just one of us. And please never feel that you're alone on the weekend. Even if for some reason you can't get a hold of one attending, most of us live with our cell phones. If not, there's always micro people in the building, other people. And yeah, we have a infectious disease clinical pharmacist. Yeah, there's seven uh, on, seven off. You're so, yeah, very blessed with our resources. Then, of course, don't forget Dr. Ayler's podcast. I will say something very sweet about Dr. Ayler. So I just was at ID Week and I was presenting. I got a text message when I finished and he was like, great job. I was like, start. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you so much for giving a shout out. Because, I mean, we're on a national platform or international platform for ID Week. And I'm like, of course I'm going to mention it because we're a team and it's a great resource. When I went to Canada after my first fellowship to do transplant ID, there was a, we were in the teaching area for the fellows and this young lady came up to me and she was one of the Canadian fellows and she's like, what's your name? I'm like, Aliyah Baluch. And she's like, oh my God. And she like literally almost jumped me was like this close, and I'm thinking to myself, you're a third worlder, it's okay. And she's like, you're the mold speaker, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But what had happened was my mold presentation for my senior talk as a fellow had been posted on the podcast, and she had heard it, and she recognized my voice, which was hilarious. And so with that, I will say, any questions? Thank you. And there's just a treasure trove of Moffitt-related talks on ID podcasts that have been done over the years, including the outstanding talks that Dr. Baluch and Dr. Klinkova have given, 
about kind of intro to managing patients at Moffitt. And even Dr. Quillitz's presentation from a week or two ago is now on there. So you can review everything about antifungals. So please check that out. And, and my sincerest appreciation to all of our faculty that have contributed to the great educational resource that we have. So yeah. I would start with the newest stuff so then because things do change, right? right? So don't be checking out my fellow talk about mold because now that's old news. That is definitely old news. But um, do you guys have any questions about these three scenarios? Yes. The new agents, um, especially the one that you're using for fusarium um, mm -hmm. at are you finding that in the resistant cases of fusarium, is there some sort of connector between these patients or these patients that have like recurrent fusarium or that are getting them from a certain, or like a prolonged neutropenia or getting them from a certain setting? Why are you seeing that? Do you know why? So I think some of it is the Florida environment. The okay. most recent one that I had, it was a BMT patient who had never been, I think it was myelofibrosis, if I remember right, so never had been through chemo. So he wouldn't have been exposed to as much anti-mold where we think selection bias. This chappie literally first time ever fusarium came from the toes and the hardest part was he was to be technical black and he was like my feet hurt and we're like oh shit and we're like can't see anything but we know it's coming and he was neutropenia for too long and then it, it just started started having the cracking started having the lifting we did a swab first swab didn't come back and then he started getting the cellulitis so we knew there was definitely cracking but we just couldn't see it and then we finally caught the fusarium he had multiple lesions all over the body the sad thing is we're still having to do single patient INDs to get the drug which is ordinary as all get out and the only reason I was able to get the drug is to be technical Rod did a crap load of paperwork for me. I had to do some more and that was the only reason we got the drug. And then you have to do a crap more paperwork in order to continue to get the drug to finish out your regimen. The reason he survived was not the drug. His counts came back because after the counts came back and we're like, oh, well, you know, thank goodness we're also getting the drug. We found out actually for the most part he was resistant to everything we thought we're helping him with, which was like a triple drug regimen. And then, you know, maybe we was getting some help from the phosphomenogenic, but it's not really. And in that case, definitely the environment. Initially, we thought it was having to do with these patients who are ping-ponging between the teams, which is what we used to think, but that seems to be more for, heuristically, I would say more for aspergillus. Um, but these fusariums are literally first time ever. They're coming back nearly patent resistant. Yeah, so I, I would say when it comes to fusarium, and you know, this is not a Florida only thing, right? So like the first time I remember seeing locations about multi-drug resistant fusarium was from Dana Farber, right? So I think actually anybody who has a case of fusariosis should suspect yeah. multi-drug resistance, right? Um, we were actually able the reason that we've actually had um, early on what would happen when we tried to get phosphomenogenics is we were waited until we actually had the susceptibility data that showed it was and then it's resistant. By that point, the patient, these patients were already dying of disseminated fusariums yeah. at this point. So we showed them, look, here's like our last 12 fusariums and they were all multi-drug resistance. Yeah. So we, we shouldn't have to wait for this data and they agreed, right? And so now, you know, we we've been able to, to get get the drug for fusarium anyway based on the fact that we have reason to suspect that it will be multi-drug resistant 
And, and, and that makes it possible. I, I would say that like anytime in 2023, if you have an invasive fungal infection that's growing, you should you should get antifungal susceptibility testing. I mean, it's not as fast as we'd like. No. But but you know we've you know aspergillus of a fumigatus azole resistance is a thing, but yep. we've also seen amphotericin resistant aspergillus. Yep. That's not that's not terious. And be aware that all of our okay. the, the, the it, they have to go to Texas for the sensitivities. And even though we say it grows fast, it's all fast to kill the patient but slow as all get out when you need a sensitivity. Is there ever like any environmental testing in regions? So I mean, you can get, for example, okay. your house mold tested, but like when patients come to us and say, oh, doc, like, does my stuff here have anything to do with the mold in my house is much less land. I meant more like the soil in Florida or the coming from like particular regions of Florida or so I presume we're basing like the pattern resistance based on the patients, right? But it's exposure to the environment. I don't know how there's anything on that or not. I'm not that I'm aware. I mean, I think they pick it up initially and then, but the question, yeah, it's, it's not really clear uh, how much is like environment, environmental use of azole antifungals versus, you know, because we, if you see it, obviously if you see azole resistance in a patient who's never taken an azole, then that's one thing, right? But Presumably, we have both both of those arms happening. Yeah. But and, and these organisms are omnipresent. We're breathing in aspergillus yeah. spores right at home. Every single person in this room. Again, swab, you know, non-sterile sites on all of our skin. You're going to grow a lot of aspergillus. You're going to grow a lot of fusarium. Yeah, so it's very hard to tie those right. to like. Yeah. I remember reading that fusariosis is a disease of palm trees mm -hmm. in Florida, mm -hmm. and then also, if I'm not mistaken, that whitish. Uh, sheen that you see sometimes on trees on the bark is aspergillus so it's all around that's good we have a nice yeah. wait william has a question how, how reliable is like susceptibility testing for you know moles and fungi in terms of like extrapolating that to real life clinical outcomes you know i mean is it <laughs> it's, it's not placed in the best that we have it's a so great that's question. why between the delaying getting the information and then you still have to look at the clinical host, right? If your patient is alive, despite what your resistance panel, they are responding. But then again, a lot of it has to do with the fact that most likely your patient's counts are coming back. Yeah, yeah. the best the best anti-serum drug we have are neutrophils. neutrophils. But um, but I think it's a lot clearer when you when you have like a panel where all of the antifungal drugs are that are MIC is greater than than the maximum data point, right? And I see, you know, like voriconazole, like what's the breakpoint for fusarium? We don't really know, but we know greater than 16 it is not it, yeah. right? So. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have had patients that despite resistance, we'll put them on Vori 400 BID, and it seems to hold, but only for a period of time. But then you have to almost go back to the the blackboard because so like I have one child, uh, Mr. K, that he had an MDR fusarium. We took parts of his toe off, but we couldn't catch it early enough that he still got stigma in his lungs. And even after we treated it, there were still some nodules that never went away. And so then we've been watching them, watching them. It took a good year before they started to increase in size. And so then we're like, okay, 
how do we know it's still that original? Is this a different problem? And so we did an open lung biopsy to make sure because at least in the BMT service, we also have been having these post-fungal pneumonia issues with cryptogenic organizing pneumonia or some other different very weird inflammatory syndromes. And the only way to diagnose that is to then do an open lung biopsy. So you might start with problem number one and you end up with problem number two. And I think for your question too, that it's kind of important to like remember MICs are an in vitro Correct. test. What you're looking at is what you know concentration kills 90% or whatever you're tying it to for your MIC yeah. of the organism in a petri dish that's being cultured up. From that, then you take studies that look at what's a breakpoint, which is an in vivo, what percent of patients are going to be, you know, cured, treated using this particular MIC at this particular site of action. And that's why you have different breakpoints for different sites in the body, urine versus blood. You have to have a lot of patients to be able to figure that out. So some things like aspergillus, we do have breakpoints for a lot of the most common antifungals. Things like curvilaria, where there's not that many cases, we don't have breakpoints. We can tell you what the MIC is, but I can't tell you if that's going to predict clinical cure or not because I don't have enough patients. There's not enough data to do it. And so that's why sometimes you'll have patients whose MIC is considered intermediate or resistant, but they got a drug, an antibiotic, and they got better. You'll sometimes have it that it says susceptible, but then they didn't get better because the MICs are just an in vitro test. And a lot of times you won't have interpretation because of yep. that, lack, that lack of data. So they'll give you a number and that's, and that's how you get it. Uh, UCAST, um, has more detailed antifungal susceptibility data uh, than, than, than CLSI. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I go there, but that's going to be aspergillus and, and Canada, right? Because only there do we have enough numbers <laughs> to, to make some correlations. And even there, there's a lot of like little caveats. footnotes <laughs> and caveats.